past couple weeks, we've been talking about Consecration Sunday, which is coming up next Sunday, the 12th. And it's a special day in the life of the church where we consider the amount of money that we want to give over the course of 2024 so that we can participate in and through the ministries of Old Pine in the work that God is doing in the world. So this week and next, we'll be exploring stories from Scripture that speak to some of the dynamics at play when our ancestors in the faith learned and relearned over and over (laughs) what it looked and felt like to trust God to protect and provide them. Whether it was Jesus encouraging his listeners not to worry about having enough or God providing quail and manna in the wilderness, often our response to encountering a truly generous God is anxiety at first. These scriptures have something valuable to say to that anxiety. So let us listen now. Our reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 20. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing left over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as each needed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving God, we approach your word coming from all different kinds of weeks with hearts full of hope and stress and everything in between. We ask that you would speak through this word what we need to know, that you would quiet all the distractions within and without, show us what we need to know, how we need to act, what is the next right step. 
Shape us into the people that you dreamt of at creation. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So for the past several weeks, we've been exploring the stories of the earliest families of our faith tradition, right? Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and then several weeks on the story of Jacob and his relationship with um, his wives and his brother and his family. And today we're picking up on the story of the people of God a few generations later, after one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, ended up in Egypt advising the Pharaoh, but as the years passed after Joseph died, a new Pharaoh came to power who enslaved the Israelites. Over time, with Moses, God delivered the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt. God parted the Red Sea, allowed them to walk on dry land. In the story of the Exodus, they were free. This story picks up on the 15th day, on the second month after they left, so right, right after. This was a new reality that they were living into, and God was walking with them to a new land, a new home. God had promised freedom and a new place to live. God had shown them God's power by parting the Red Sea and delivering them and conquering Egypt. So there was a lot that kind of worked in God's favor to show God's power and God's trustworthiness to do things on behalf of the Israelites. But the Israelites were still human, and they still got hungry. (laughs) The food ran out, and they grumbled or complained. What's interesting in the Hebrew language is that this is actually transliterated as they stayed put. They stopped moving with God to the new land and a new home, and they stayed put, and they became obstinate and stubborn. Basically, we're not going any farther, God. There's no proof that there's going to be food. We're going to starve. At least in Egypt, we knew how to get the food that we needed. But in the story, God hears the grumbling, the complaining of the Israelite people, and responded by providing quail and bread from heaven. Later, we learn it's called manna for them to eat. The food is given with some boundaries. Only gather what you need and don't save enough for the next day. What's interesting here is that God doesn't promise that there'll be manna tomorrow. It's just, here's your manna and here's your quail. And so the Israelites, not knowing if there will be manna or quail tomorrow, cross both of those boundaries. Some attempt to gather more than they need and some gather less than they need. But somehow when they sat down to eat, it had all evened out. And then we read that some people did try to save some of the manna for the next day but it rotted. Historically, when we read this text, it's kind of tempting to shame the Israelites a little bit, to judge them and view their grumbling and complaining as just being whiny or or petulant. Historically, we often read this text or teach this text as uh, don't be stubborn, don't be ungrateful like those Israelites. Trust in God. God will work it all out. But when we stop and think about it for a bit and perhaps bring a little compassion to the Israelites in the story. They, they kind of had a point. <laughs> they needed food, and they were afraid that there would not be enough. They didn't know God's plan that there would be more tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. In our godly play curriculum with the kids, we describe the desert as a strange and wonderful place where some people live and some people only go there if they have to. 
The sun is very hot. The wind blows so strong that sometimes you can't tell which way you are going. And there is very little water there, so it's hard to find food to eat. It takes courage to go into the desert. So we frame that for our kids in that language, and I think it's really helpful to hold in our minds here. They were in the desert, the wilderness, completely new and foreign territory. And so again, if we bring some compassion to the Israelites, I think it's actually likely that they had good intentions for doing what they did, for gathering more than they needed, or gathering less than they needed, and those who tried to save it for the next day. These are families, these are people who have little ones and elderly ones who need help and care. There's been no promise of food for the next day, so perhaps they're thinking, okay, I need to make sure that I have enough for the next several days, because who knows what's happening next. Perhaps those who gathered less were planning to kind of divide it out and have just little bits to sustain them throughout the next few days. Perhaps they wanted to make sure that they could feed their children in the morning. The Israelites had good intentions, but their actions that were based on fear ended up having really negative effects. So the most clear one is that the food rots. So their, their whole effort to save some food for the morning, it doesn't work, and it's just gone. So now they have both not had enough for breakfast, and they were hungry the night before. <laughs> and not only does it rot, they have, they have deprived themselves of what they ought to have had. If you gather enough for your family and then you decide to put part of it aside for the morning, that means you actually don't have enough for your family that evening, right? And so then it's a mother or a father or an elder who is choosing not to eat so that someone else can. And that's not what God wants. God doesn't want Israelites to be deprived. God's trying to give them the food, trying to provide for them in that moment. So even when we have of these good intentions of trying to care for other people, when those good intentions are paired with a fear that God is not going to be there for us, it ends up having these really negative effects. And what's interesting to me is that this sounds like, a, okay, well, they just shouldn't have done that kind of a simple reversal of behavior. But this begins and in a way continues a theme of idolatry versus trusting God that we see through the entire scriptures. And now we often think of idolatry as the golden calf, which they're about to do in a few weeks <laughs> from this story. And we're like, okay, I'm not going to go worship a, an inanimate object. That's not a problem for me, right? So that's not, idolatry is not something that we struggle with. But idolatry at its core is trusting in anything other than God to save you when things get hard. So for them, it was a god encased in gold as a golden calf. Later in this story, their idolatry is I'm going to take care of myself and my own. 
I'm going to make sure that I have enough and that my family has enough because I don't know what's going on. I don't know what tomorrow is bringing, but I know at least that I can control this and have this sorted out. That is choosing to trust in oneself and one's ability to control something versus to trust in God's love and provision. In your bulletin, there's a quote by Meredith Miller, because we've been looking at this book, we've been prepping for this event, she's very top of mind, obviously, and she talks about how idols promise protection, provision, and prevention. They don't just promise that if you do this, you'll have more than enough that you need, or if you do this, you won't uh, be vulnerable if something bad happens to you. Idols promise a prevention of further bad things happening. So in this example, if they save the food till the morning, then they won't be hungry in the morning because they will have prevented that bad thing from happening because they had the control to put the food aside. I know this is granular, but it it matters because it, it works in an exponential way. So what are we trying to prevent when really no one can prevent bad things from happening? There's nothing we can control. There's no environment that we can perfectly manage to make in such a way that bad things don't happen. And so what what do we do with that? How do we shift from idolizing our own self-sufficiency to trusting in God. I chose the title for this sermon, Not All That Glitters is Gold, partly to poke fun at myself because I love gold glitter nail polish, but also because idols glitter and they shimmer. They promise us things, but they're not actually gold. They leave us empty. Self-sufficiency The good old American dream promises us that we can do anything, regardless of our circumstances, if we just work really hard. But part of why I wanted to use that example with the kids about different neighborhoods and different amounts of candy, because some of us just have different circumstances. Idols glitter and they shimmer, but they are not gold. They leave us empty. And then we see in the Luke text that Megan read, where Jesus says, Consider the lilies. They neither toil nor spin, yet they are more glorious than Solomon. They neither toil nor spin, but God provides for them. How often do we spend our days working so hard to get what we think that we need? We toil and we spin but God has already provided us what we need. So the Israelites, they may have had good intentions, but they made choices that ended up having negative effects. And so then how does God respond? Does God say, okay, well, clearly you're not responsible enough to handle even a day's worth of manna, so I'm just going to hold it back from you and not give you any more for a few more days to teach you a lesson. Moses gets mad at them, but God doesn't seem to, at least here. What God does is send more manna the next day. What God does is prove God's self to be consistent and trustworthy, regardless of how little trust the Israelites have in God. And if we step a little bit even further back, 
God hears the grumbling of the Israelites in the first place. And the grumbling, that complaining, again, if we can be compassionate, is not whining. It is a legitimate fear and need. God witnesses the fear. God says, I have heard your complaining. I have heard that you're staying put. And meets the need with the food that they need in a rhythm that they need that works against their impulse to toil and spin, to work and rely on themselves. That is what God does for us now. God witnesses our fear and our need and meets those needs. God is consistent and trustworthy. God hears our prayers. And so I wonder for us today if we can examine and think about perhaps some rhythms or dynamics in our lives that we wish we didn't do, but maybe they actually have good intentions behind them. But those good intentions are paired with some fear. So if you didn't do that behavior, if you didn't do that, that choice that had a negative effect, what would happen? If you brought compassion to those good intentions, even as they have negative consequences in your life, is there a way in and through that compassion to shift our focus away from our fear, away from ourselves and our own idolatry of self-sufficiency toward God's trustworthiness and consistency. It is really hard to name our needs, to name our fears, and then to let God help us. We would much rather do it all on our own and take care of ourselves. But what God shows us in this story is that that's not how God designs this relationship to go. God designs it so that everyone has enough, so that there is no need to trust in your own strength. That God will continue to show up and show that God is trustworthy over and over and over and over again, all the way until Jesus talks about not worrying about where we will find what we need. I chose this story to connect it to this season of stewardship because I think when we think about giving and money, it is so hard to separate money and transactional thinking because literally we use money for transactions all the time. And that's why I always like to broaden pledge season and stewardship to be what are the gifts that you've been given not just money, but your time and your energy and your creativity and your musical talent and your patience. What are the gifts that you've been given that we can share with one another, that we are invited to invest in this place, in this work together? But a pledge is a financial commitment. And it comes with a lot of these good intentions. I want to be a part of something. I want to contribute to something. I want it to matter. And a whole lot of fear. What if I do and then I, I can't pay my bills? What if I do and some emergency happens? What, do, what if I do that and then I've calculated wrong and I can't go back because I'd be too embarrassed to say that my pledge number has changed? All of those are fears that we do not need to listen to because God is trustworthy and consistent and God walks with us when we make choices 
in the direction of trusting God. So whether you pledge five pieces of candy or 25, figuratively, God is working in that to make sure that you have enough. God is showing up over and over and over again to say, I see your need. I hear your fear. I have heard you. I have seen you. And here, here is the manna that you need. Whatever that looks like for you. Maybe it's participating in this church world. Maybe it's an inheritance that you don't know you're going to get next week. Who knows? But God hears our need. God sees our fear and says, here, here is the manna that you need. And when you doubt it, I will give it to you again. And when you hoard it and it rots and you deprive yourself of it and you deprive other people of the gift that you've been given, I will give it to you again because we are going to work on this together and practice and I will show you that I am trustworthy. God addresses both our needs and our fears And God gives us enough to enjoy it ourselves, to not deprive ourselves, and to not deprive other people of the gift that we've been given. God hears us and sees us and gives us what we need when we need it, over and over and over again. What a gift. Thanks be to God. Amen.